question and answer can come at different times, but singing night typically falls on the same Sunday. So a week from tonight is our monthly singing. We've been trying to emphasize because of how important it is certainly to our God. It's one of our five acts of worship that we uh, grow our repertoire of songs that we can sing and grow in our ability to sing. Uh, to that end, uh, we are so grateful to Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy is the one that coordinates this, though Jeremy, 90% of the people know who you are. Just raise your hand real quick. That's the guy you want to see to give your song suggestions if you want to give them ahead of time. And men who want to lead singing, there's the guy. Go find him. That way he doesn't have to find you. So uh, next Sunday night we'll have that. And then something that has been very instrumental to more people than you realize um, there are families who said that what was influential in their placing membership here was something that was going on, and we haven't done it in a while, and that's when our young men preach on the fifth Sunday night of the month. That happens four times a year. There's a fifth Sunday in this month, and so we're looking forward to our young men preaching to us from the book of Philippians. That'll be two weeks from tonight. And so, Kathy, my mind's going in like eight different directions because of the question and answers, they're, they're so varied from one another. I chose as the passage Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27 because the first two questions kind of fall in the area of Christian evidences. Now let me say this, there are a great many websites in Christendom that are trustworthy on the whole for uh, sources for us to find answers to various questions about uh, evolution, about creation, about the age of the earth, and, and uh, matters like that. And so I would encourage you to look at those uh, patterns of evidence. Uh, is one, answers in Genesis. That's in the broader view of things, not members of the church. But within our brotherhood, we have as uh, sound and great of minds as there are scientific experts in any matter that you might have a question about, including the two that we're going to look at tonight. So if you don't know these already, Apologetics Press out of Montgomery, Alabama, has been around for 40-plus years, is a great resource. In fact, it may have been periodically in our uh, curriculum uh, that we use that, uh, but they, it has a search bar, and you can go in there, and you can find it. Another one that just came to mind is Christian Courier, literally Anything that you could type in, they've probably done something on that. And another one is a more video resource, uh, and that's World Video Bible School. And you can look at, just again, anything that you might have a question about in this discipline, this area, and they'll have answers for you. All right, so we're going to look at a couple of questions in Christian Evidences. The first one is, how old is the earth, and how do we know? Now, why is that question important? Well, especially as it relates to Christendom or those who would profess belief in the Bible and in Christ, there is a tendency to try to fit the theory of evolution and the idea of an ancient earth and the Bible. I would suggest, though I believe, and we'll see before this is over tonight, that it makes far less plausible, logical sense to believe in evolution as opposed to what the Bible says but it's very difficult to reconcile those two things. And so we'll look at that here in order. There's three things I want to do to talk about the age of the earth and how we can know that. The first is to understand what Scripture says about the creation itself and how long it took for it to occur. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11, Moses is the one who writes, is the penman of both Genesis and Exodus, 
And he says, in six days, the Lord God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. John 1, 1 through 3 would indicate to us by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And uh, he made all things. And without him was not anything made that was made that the agent of creation in the Godhead was the second personality of the Godhead, as we call him, God the Son, as he was known before he came to this earth, the pre-incarnate, before-in-flesh word. That's how John identifies him. Colossians 1.16 says something very similar, that he created all things in heaven or earth, visible or invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things are made through him and for him. So when we come to Genesis chapter 1... Moses is setting forth a very straightforward historical depiction of what takes place in creation. We know that because of the language that he employs. Now there are some who would try to say that those days in creation in Genesis chapter 1, they they represent long eons or ages of time. Or they'll try to change the order of creation to accommodate the theory of evolution. But there are a couple of language problems that we have in the way that Moses writes Genesis chapter 1. For example, that word day, yam, or the plural yamim, can mean an extended period of time or an indefinite period of time. But something that never ever happens in the Hebrew, do you have a specific number or article before that word and it means anything else other than a literal Day. So let's walk through Genesis chapter 1. On the first day, he called it the second day. When you have that definite number, it limits, it defines what that word day means. And so it is a literal 24-hour period. Alongside of that is a phrase that you'll find not only in the creation account, but you'll find it 334 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's the phrase evening and morning. And if you will take the time to walk through in your study and look at all 334 occurrences, what you'll find is that every single time it's literal. It's not figurative. And so you put it together, Moses, just not to give it to us once, but to give it to us twice, says there was evening and morning, indicating a literal period of 24 hours. And then he says the second day. So in two different ways, he is telling us these are 24-hour periods. We'll say more about that in just a moment. But then we can appeal to the, the genealogical record. Now, And again, this is not an argument for somebody who doesn't believe in the Bible. We started a different place for that. We can establish God's existence. We can establish the inspiration of God's Word. That's If you want that question to be answered, submit that and we'll talk about it. But assuming that the Bible is God's Word... There's a genealogical record that's to be found in the Bible. You will find it throughout in different places in your Bible. You'll find it, for example, in Genesis chapter 4 and 5. You'll find it in Genesis 10 and 11. You'll find it in 1 Chronicles, Matthew uh, chapter 1, Luke chapter 3. So you have various places where the genealogies are being laid out for us. And as we look at that, We can see from Adam to Christ an approximate period that's covered by the Bible writers of about 4,000 years. From Christ to now, we know that number, that's 2021. Is it possible that there are generations that are skipped in the genealogical record? Certainly that's a possibility. 
But we would accommodate that gap with hundreds or thousands of years, but not millions of years. uh, Evolutionists say that humans have been on this earth for about three million years. There's no accommodation for that in the genealogical record. A third and very rich study, one I don't feel fully qualified to talk about, but I'll give you a couple of examples There are evidences on the earth that give us an indication that this earth could not be ancient. It could not be. There's the amount of sediment on the floor of the sea. That's not a constant. That's ever-changing. By extrapolating, by looking back, we could see that that sediment would be too light to uh, uh, cause for us to have the, the waves that we have in the seasons and to avoid certain natural catastrophes. There's the size of the sun. Did you know that the sun is shrinking 0.1% every century? You go, Neil, that doesn't sound like much at all. You know what that amounts to? That's five feet an hour. So if we extrapolate, that as we go back in time, if it's shrinking, if it's now 0.1% smaller than it was in 1900 or 1921, and it was 0.1% bigger in 1821 and go back in time, you know what happens in 100,000 years? It's twice as big as it is now. And what would happen, ask any scientist, if our sun was twice as big as it is right now? And then there's the magnetic field. Did you know that the magnetic field was twice as strong 1,400 years ago than it is right now? And scientists argue as to the differences of what would happen with a stronger magnetic field. But if you get to 500,000 Gauss, you're talking about a force that will rip objects apart. I do know it would be very hard to live on a material earth if it was ripped apart. And so arguments that are made for an ancient earth are pointing us more to try to accommodate something that we don't need to accommodate. The Lord God made the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that are in them, In six days. One other thing. With regard to extrapolating world population, I just noticed today that the population has grown. uh, By the way, here's our proofs. There's some pictures for you to think about what I'm talking about. The Earth's population as of now is 7.9 billion people. 34 years ago, it was 5 billion people. But to accommodate one to three million years in time would require a number of ten to the two thousandth power. That wouldn't fit in the universe. And that's also factoring in disease and death and natural disasters and war. And so it's easier for us, isn't it, to take God's word at face value. He straightforwardly tells us that this is how it happened, this is when it happened, And, of course, the rest of the Bible is why it happened. All right, another question that relates to this is where do the dinosaurs fit in? When we think about how evolutionary scientists would speak to us about the timetable, the the fossil record and the geological timetables, they would indicate to us that, first of all, human beings and dinosaurs did not walk the earth at the same time. In the theory of evolution, we would have been a byproduct down the line from that, And also, you would need an ancient earth in order to accommodate it. When we think about dinosaurs, the question is, are dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible? Well, if you're talking about the word dinosaur, the word dinosaur is not mentioned in the Bible. There's a good reason for that. You may know this, the term dinosaur was coined in the 1840s. 
They took a Greek word and it simply means greater fearful reptiles. So nobody referred to anything by the word dinosaur before the 1840s. But they did refer to beasts and creatures and serpents and dragons. And they might have used terms like fearful and great. Well, somebody would say, some who believe in the Bible, and a great many who believe in the theory of evolution, would say that there is no way that dinosaurs and humans existed at the same time. And there's no way, because of the fact that the Bible covers human history, that dinosaurs are mentioned in the Bible. Well, there it is interesting, before we get to the, the Bible, that, that there are people all over the world who are separated from one another, even by continents, by space and by time, who all describe creatures that had great long necks and bodies and tails. And they had terrifying teeth and tongues and claws. And some of them had wings and they breathed fire and they were uh, in and out of the water. Does the Bible mention this at all? Well, I'd like for us to notice a few things about that. First of all, did you know that there are at least... Four discoveries that forever destroy the idea that dinosaurs lived before humans and that humans never saw dinosaurs. There are testimonies, and by the way, it's interesting to me, that they're um, uh, away from each other on the earth. Um, The Bible does mention some creatures for us before we get to that. There's the behemoth. The behemoth is mentioned in your Bible in Job chapter 40 and verse 15. And God is answering Job. Job wants to know why he's suffering, and so God comes along, and while he tells Job that God doesn't answer to man, he transcends, he's above uh, human existence. He cares for humanity, but he's not going to be called into court because he's a perfect and transcendent God. But he answers him by giving Job several examples and asking Job several questions. And in the midst of that, he says, I want you to consider behemoth, the first of all creation." Individuals will look at behemoth and they'll say, commentators, you might even look. If you want to go to Job 14, 40 and verse 15, if you haven't already done so, look at your little marginal note. What does it say? It'll say hippopotamus. It may say elephant, is that right? If you go to, to Job 41 and verse 1, or uh, when the, uh, Job describes that next creature, Leviathan, you'll have uh, something in your footnote to the effect of crocodile. So what some will say is, is that God is uh, using a term or that Job or whoever writes Job is recording a term that's really a, a, an exaggerated description of a hippopotamus and a crocodile. We're going to look a little closer in just a moment, but that doesn't sound like either of those creatures. Or they'll say that God is using or referring to a mythological creature In order to make a point to Job, that won't work. Because Job chapter 40 and verse 15, God says, I want you to behold behemoth, which I have formed or made as well as you. Job's not a mythological creature. Oh, in Psalm 104 and verse 26, something similar is said about Leviathan, which the Lord God has formed. And so as we think about what God is asking Job to do, he's saying... Here is a creature that you can go and you can see right now. Back to those evidences. The third largest natural bridge in the world is the the Natural Bridge National Monument in Utah. And you can still go there today and you can see what you see in front of you. 
that there is uh, there are drawings by the Anasazi people of dinosaurs. And that those who have studied those rock drawings, those experts, have told us that these are genuine. They're not fakes. And they've been around, by the way, longer than the fossil records and the geological timetable. But then there's the Ica stones, the people of Peru. These are stones that they buried with their dead. They date, as the first one does, to 500 to 1500 years ago. Think about that. We're saying 16, the year 1600 to the year five or 600. I'm not a mathematician. I'm a preacher. You can do the math. So it's in, since Christ's coming to this earth. You have these creatures that have been uh, carved out onto those rocks. Pterosaurs, stegosauruses, and other dinosaurs that the Ica people have carved out. Now here's one that I have seen at least four times myself. There are several temples in Sim Reap, and people come from all over Southeast Asia to see this. They're Buddhist temples. This is the jungle temple. If you ever saw uh, uh, the, the, what's her name, the, the Tomb Raider, you know what I'm talking about? Lara Croft, thank you very much. Um, Lara Croft Tomb Raider, it was filmed right there. There is a column, a stone column with carvings on it, and right in the middle of that carving is a stegosaurus. 600 years, because the, it dates to 1186 A.D., 600 years before the fossil record, how did they know what it looked like? Perhaps because they had seen it. Well, and then there's the Akambora figures in Mexico. These are a variety of dinosaurs that have been carved. Thermoluminescence would date these to thousands of years old at their greatest antiquity. I believe that this, for the reasonable mind, destroys the notion that dinosaurs lived long ago and disappeared before humanity ever came along. Why would it be that those would resist the idea that humans and dinosaurs coexist because it doesn't fit with the prevailing theory of evolution? The prevailing theory of evolution is that one went extinct before the other came on the scene. It fits with the geological timetable and the fossil records as they have been constructed without God in the picture. Well, When you look at the descriptions that God gives to Job of behemoth and leviathan, it's a creature unlike we see on the earth today. What they might be are left to us to think, but with regard to Leviathan, more is said. Behemoth is only mentioned in Job 40, verse 15 to 21. But Leviathan is mentioned twice in Job, twice in the book of Psalms, and once in the book of Isaiah. And by the way, there are sea creatures in Job 7 and verse 12 uh, that sound a lot like plesiosaurs. And you also have flying serpents. While we don't see those creatures flying around today, fossils have been uh, uncovered that demonstrate that they did uh, exist at one time. Well, we ask ourselves why this is. Job points this out to show, I have all power. I have all knowledge. I don't need anything from anybody, but I'm capable of taking care of you. That's the point of Job bringing that up. But he does so with such evidence. Something else for us to explore is something like Leviathan may be what we have in mind with the idea of um, the creatures that people refer to as dragons. Dragons are talked about all over the earth. 
It's always interesting when civilizations that are separated from one another by time and distance are all telling the same story. It makes us scratch our head. Did you know that there are stories of creatures, large reptiles, laying eggs that have very armor-like skin, that have um, dorsal spines, that uh, have bat-like wings in some instances, that breathe fire, that are in or out of water in North America, among the Huron and the Seneca Indians, in the Middle East, in Pakistan, in Europe, in places like Switzerland, in France, in England, in Russia, in uh, Asia, in North Africa. All are telling the same story about these creatures. You look at Leviathan, when somebody says that's a crocodile, crocodiles have soft bellies. They're stealthy swimmers. You can't say that what they do is see those things which are high. Psalm 104 and verse 26 likens it or puts it on a par with a ship on the sea. God holds up this to show I'm the master creator. And here's something else. You remember what Mike read to us a moment ago in Genesis 1, 26 and 27? Not only did dinosaurs and humans exist at the same time, but humanity had dominion over them. They might have been afraid of them and not want to tangle with them, but they had dominion over everything on this earth. Now that doesn't make sense to you if your science is formulated by the Jurassic Park movies. But the Bible makes it clear that we had dominion over them. And why wouldn't those who believe in evolutionary science want to believe that dinosaurs and humans existed at the same time? A man by the name of Lewis King, who was at the time the president of the scientific uh, paleontology uh, vertebrates, said, because evolution is forever destroyed if a literal six days are established. It makes far more sense to believe in the biblical record than it does in the theory of evolution. Why? Because you have to explain with evolution how morality and consciousness arose from unconscious and amoral matter. But not only that, we don't have to reconcile at all the evidence that I showed you about humans and dinosaurs coexisting. God's capable. When you think about some of the creatures that exist, the titanosaur that exists is said to be as heavy as a herd of African elephants. How about Spinosaur? It is the scariest and largest uh, uh, carnivorous reptile that existed, far bigger than T-Rex. It was said to be as big as a school bus and weigh as much as an elephant. What's the point of that? Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven. Ah, Lord God, I am the Lord God. Is there anything too hard for me? And so I look at God's demonstration in creation and I can say, that's the God who can take care of me who has that kind of power, that kind of knowledge. More can be said about that, but I have a couple of more questions that I want to deal with. Okay, let me read this one as it was submitted to me. We read where we must all face judgment day, and we will all meet him in the sky. And yet I continue to hear ministers in preaching funerals say that he or she is now in a better place, or that he or she is now looking down on us. If he or she has not faced the judgment... How can that be? Would you please explain? So we have to admit something that we know for sure by way of experience. None of us have been on the other side of time out in eternity. So none of us is going to speak with authority because we're not there yet. 
But we can trust some of what the Bible tells us about both time and eternity and what happens in the in-between. We know from Hebrews 9 and verse 27 that it is appointed unto men once to die and after this is the judgment. So the question is, what happens to us between now and the time that we are in eternity? And is it possible for a dead loved one, let's assume one who is saved, could be looking down on heaven or even looking after us, as some would say? In answer to that, I don't see anything in Scripture that that indicates that. There is an indication that there seems to be a, a place of waiting, I don't know a better way to put that, that's described for us in Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 31. Jesus is telling a, if it's a parable or if it's a true story, it doesn't matter. Jesus is not going to make up stuff in telling a parable. So even if these are fictional characters, it represents truth. Jesus talks about a rich man in Lazarus. And Lazarus is named for us. He dies and he is carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Alright, so if you can make that picture in your mind, you have Lazarus, a man who has died and who is now out in eternity, is now in a place identified where Abraham is and he's resting there. And then after this, the rich man also died and in hell, he lifted up his eyes. Alright, so we have another compartment out there, outside of time, in eternity, that is described as being different in its quality and its nature from where Lazarus is. And in between those two, there's a great gulf so that the one on this side of that waiting place cannot go to the other, and neither can he go to the other side. So there's a separation there. So there is a place, an existence, outside of this life that Jesus describes for us. I think we also have it mentioned, both of them, somewhere else. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's dying. And there's a penitent thief beside him. And he is sorry for what he's done. He asks Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does Jesus say in reply? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. Jesus was about to go to a place from which he was going to come back. Presumably the place that Lazarus came back from in John chapter 11, because we read about him in John chapter 12, that is a place of rest, a place of peace, a place that does not, Jesus would not go and suffer in uh, torment. He suffered on the cross, but he said, you'll be with me in paradise. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through about verse 14, actually go even earlier in the chapter, there is a place uh, uh, reserved uh, for hell in chains of darkness. That's where the unrighteous are going to be. That word for hell there is a word only found there in the New Testament. It's the word Tartarus. And that simply means a place of waiting for the unrighteous. So it seems, I don't, under, I don't claim to know everything about this, that you have a place where the unrighteous are being held unto the day of judgment. That eternal realm. Now let's go back, let's talk about the rich man there. He was concerned about brothers who were still in time. But Lazarus could not go back and have interaction with them. What was the answer? They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. That was God's way to look after and to see after those that have are still on time. Now I'm going to have to say this to you. Time exists for us. When we die, 
Time is no longer relevant. Could it be outside of time that the, and I'm going to use an accommodative word, that time between Adam's death and the second coming of Christ is that? That that's how, I mean, how long is eternity? It's boundless. It's vast. So I would say, ultimately, it doesn't matter. When we die, we're going to be at, at the judgment when, when God ends it all. Okay, we're swimming in the deep end of the pool. So it's difficult. That's like saying, explain God to me. But I do believe that we can trust what he says, and we should be careful about what he does not say. I, I don't see a statement But you know what? It doesn't matter if our mom or our dad are not looking down over us. If we were listening to the sermon this morning, we have something far greater and more comforting than that. A God who loves us and is looking down on us. All right. How does one repent of adultery? I want to read this the way that it was uh, read to me. See, we're we're going all over the place, aren't we? All right. From dinosaurs to that. Um, If a Christian man is married and gets divorced for reasons not approved of in Scripture... And then marries another woman and realizes that this is a sin and he is living in adultery. What would be involved in truly repenting of this sin? Would he need to divorce the second wife and return to his first wife? I know people say that two wrongs don't make a right, but this is man's statement, not God's. While our questioner may be tipping his hat as to where uh, he feels with regard to this, let me me state it again in, in, in this way, maybe a more concise way. Brother Winkler used to say it this way, if person A is married to person B, and person A divorces person B for reasons other than fornication, and person A is married then to person C, whether or not C has a right to be married, person A and person C are living in adultery. Now that's his accommodative words. But what's that based on? That's based on what happens in Matthew chapter 19. You remember the Pharisees come to Jesus, they're testing him, and they're saying, is it lawful for a man to put his wife away for any cause? And Jesus straightens out that God, that God through Moses allowed in the, in the first covenant for these things to be. But from the beginning it was not so. And so he says there's an original pattern that God has for marriage, and that's one husband, one wife for life. That's how God created it through the law of Moses that had been corrupted. But now notice what Jesus says in verse 6. But I say unto you, and verse 9 it is, except a man put away his wife, if a man put away, puts away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marries another, he commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is put away commits adultery. If you read that without its exception clause, it's whoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. Our Lord gives us an exception. And that's if we divorce our spouse for their fornication. Now back to our question. Person A is married to person C. We've already determined that this scripture determines this is an adulterous relationship. The only recourse that A has to be right with God is to sever that relationship with C. Let's say that A and C have children. This is some of the the questions that come up. We can't deal with all marriage, divorce, and remarriage scenarios. Trust me, there's a bunch of them. If they have children together, A, assuming A is the man, has responsibility to support those children, but they cannot live together. It's not a lawful union according to Christ. 
if B is not remarried and A seeks B to be reconciled, they can be reconciled together. But outside of that, that individual, if B doesn't want that to happen, A must remain alone. Now you say, boy, that sounds so tough. You know what? Jesus anticipated that. You you notice what verse 10 through 12 tells us? After Jesus says, I say unto you, and he lays out his restoration of marriage under his covenant, what do the disciples say immediately after that? If that's the case, it's better for a man not to be married. If anything goes, and if you're going to say, I'm sorry, and stay with a new person, the disciples would not have said that. And then Jesus says... Not everybody can accept that except those to whom it is given. He's not saying, hey, some people will accept it. And if you can't, well, okay, that's all right. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, you have to accept it to be my disciple, but there are going to be some people who won't accept it. Wouldn't we agree that that's the case, that there are some people who can't accept what the Lord says? And then our Lord puts the final touch on it in verse 12. He says there are three classes of eunuchs. There are those who are born that way from their mother's womb, physical, genetic. And then there are those who have been made eunuchs of men. We can see in societies, for example, one who is put in charge of a harem so that the king or the, 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 the ruler of that, whatever you call that guy with the harem, well, he can trust that, that caretaker has them um, made eunuchs. But then there are some who are made eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Listen, I don't know how I come across as I'm saying this. This is the most difficult thing that we ever encounter in the body of Christ. I'm going to tell you right now, hardest thing I deal with as a preacher, and I know our elders do, but at the same time, we're not at liberty to create our own gospel and do things the way that we think they ought to be done. We've got to respect God's Word, realizing that He's our Master and our Lord. And, thinking about what we talked about a while ago, there is a place waiting us far greater than this life. One other. It's not on, I don't think it's on the PowerPoint uh, up there. I was asked about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Is it possible, what is it, and is it possible to commit that sin today? Well, uh, in answer to that, there are a few places you can look in your Bible. And for the sake of time, I'll let you study those contexts on their own. I'm just going to refer to it. Um, Matthew chapter 12, verse 29 and following. Mark chapter 3, about verse 29. Luke chapter 12 and verse 10. All are dealing with the same thing. If you have a cross-reference Bible, it will talk to you about that. But with regard to the, the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, what is it? And is it possible for us to commit that today? In one sense, let me say the answer to that is no. Because there's something very specific happening in the Pharisees' case. As we see the Pharisees encountering Jesus performing the miracles, do you remember in Matthew 9.34 they start this argument where they say that Jesus is casting out devils or demons by the Spirit or by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons? What they're saying is Jesus' power in doing these miracles is the devil. Well, who was the power? The Holy Spirit. And they continue to persist in that. And if I can point you to some things, if you're turning your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 12, I want to show you some, some language things that can help us in the answer to this. So turn to Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to put on some glasses so I can see it. Matthew chapter 12. 
The first thing I want you to notice is, but uh, when uh, look at Matthew chapter 12 and verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, that is the crowd praising Jesus, this must be the son of, devil, of David, they said, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the, de- uh, the, the demons. This is an aorist uh, tense, in, uh, and you can see it even better in Mark 3, verse 22. And it means that they were persistently saying. They were saying over and over again. They were persisting in this mantra, that is, this reply, that Jesus is doing this by the prince of the demons. Verse 25, it's also important for us to notice that Jesus knew their thoughts. We have a factor that was present then that's not present now. Jesus could look into their hearts and know exactly what was in there. And so he said, based on that, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you here in just a minute. Um, And then we go over to verse 34, after Jesus has made this statement about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you, being... Evil, this, is, this word uh, being, means a prolonged, sustained relationship with evil. That they had persisted in evil. And then in verse 34, continuing, For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. They were continuously speaking. So Jesus is choosing a particular form of the, of the words that he's using to say, Pharisees are persistently, continually saying that this is being done by the devil. They were attributing the miracles that they saw not to be of the Holy Spirit, but against, I mean, that that was being done by the devil. Jesus says, you have blasphemed, you have spoken evil against the Holy Spirit. And that's, so here's the thought. You have God the Father who sent the Son. They had rejected the Son over and over again. And now they have rejected the Holy Spirit. What else is left? And so they did something that we can't do because we can't see miracles being done. Having said that, we can continue to persist in and speak evil and live against the idea of God. Second Peter chapter 2 speaks of a people who cannot cease from sin. We can harden our hearts to the point that if we persist in that state, that we cannot and we will not change. You know what Peter says about that in verse 20 through 22? It had been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn away from the holy commandments delivered unto them. So is it possible for somebody to get themselves in a state that continuing in that state, they will not be forgiven? Yes. The good news is that's also conditional. You know, somebody could curse God and could live in blasphemy and then have a change of heart and come back and God would forgive them. So there's no counterpart because we don't have the Pharisees watching miracles today that exists, that creates a class of people that cannot be forgiven. The story of the prodigal son is of one who renounced everything about the father who came back and was restored to sonship. It's consistent with the message of grace and the invitation of our Lord. We extend that to you tonight. It may be that you find yourself outside of a right relationship with God. As we've just said, you can't go so far and sink so low that upon repenting, changing your heart that leads to a change of life, change your attitude about sin and about righteousness, that leads you in your faith that Jesus is the Son of God. If you'll submit to baptism, you can have your sins washed away. And there's nothing more that God would want than that. 
And if you're a child of God, perhaps you have t- turned away from the light and gone into darkness, 1 John 1 and verse 6, He's faithful and just to forgive you if you'll put that away and come back to Him. If we can help you in any way, we would urge you to come right now as together we stand and sing.